Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of the Prog Report Profiles, where we cover the Neil Morse band. With me, of course, is my co-host, Jeff Bailey. Hello, Roy. Hello, everybody. This has been a sort of a uh, something we're testing and seeing how it's going to work. And the first episode did really, really well. The response was really surprisingly great. And uh, so we're going to keep on with this series and jump into episode two. By popular uh, demand. <laughs> by popular demand. Uh, of course, let me just remind everybody, if you've missed the first episode, it is available on progreport.com and all our podcast uh, outlets, iTunes, Google Play, and all that stuff. And uh, other older episodes are available there as well. And uh, of course, we just posted some uh, really cool stuff on the Cruise to the Edge. It's available online. A cool recap video came out and all sorts of good stuff. So please, uh, if you're not following us yet, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so we can keep you up to date. And uh, yeah, so we'll just jump in into this one. When we left Neil, he had just departed from Spock's beard after releasing Snow and uh, nobody really knew what was going to be with any of his uh, music moving forward or Transatlantic or anything else that was in the works. Dream Theater had just had some big success uh, getting back from uh, Scenes from Memory and uh, Six Degrees of uh, Inner Turbulence. And um, so no one really knew what else was going to happen at that point. No one knew what was going to happen. I think probably least of all, Neil, if you read his his um, testimony autobiography book um he wasn't sure what lay ahead for him but then round about um october time whenever um he had officially was able to announce he was leaving those bands he talks about having a huge outpouring of musical ideas that filled eight cassette tapes and from that um came another double album um, based on his own story and he shared those um demos and those ideas with mike who was very enthusiastic and who wanted to be involved um, both in the recording and eventually in the tour. Here is Mike talking about finding out that Neil had made this double album and hearing it and getting a chance to work with him again. He had left Spock's beard and uh, for all intents and purposes left Transatlantic as well. Uh, I believe it was 2002 or 2003. And, um, you know, for me, I, I was heartbroken over that, just like any other Spock's Beard fan. Um, you know, as a fan of his, I was heartbroken and, and wondering what that meant. You know, did this mean the end of, you know, these Prague masterpieces that, that I had loved as a listener? Uh, I also was concerned as, as a friend of Neil's, you know, what this meant for him on a personal level. So I was really honored, for starters... I was honored when he called me and asked me to uh, to play on his first proper solo album, post Spock's Beard solo album. So I was honored, but I guess the other word I'm looking for is, is relieved. I was also relieved right. that you know he was going to continue making these epic prog albums. But it was an honor for me uh, to to be asked to kind of be his sidekick and stay on board with him. Um, so. You know, he sent me the demos for Testimony, and, and here it was a double album. It was mammoth. You know, he had just come off of a double concept album making Snow, <laughs> and then his next album was now a double concept album with Testimony. And it was exciting for me to hear this, this masterpiece. You know, he basically sent me the, the demos for the entire album with him playing every instrument and programming the drum machine, and it was, you know, it was like listening to 
Tommy or The Wall, you know, this absolute prog masterpiece. So it was exciting for me to be asked to uh, be on board with him for this next stage of his life and career. Uh, you know, as a drummer and a, and a musical partner, it was an honor. And also as a friend, it was an honor that, you know, that he felt that personal connection with me and wanted me to stay by his side through all this. So with Testimony began um, a string of Neil Moore's solo albums.
was colder in the sun a live version taken from the testimony tour uh, i think now's maybe a good time for us to talk about what our thoughts were about testimony and what neil was doing and where his career was going at the time uh jeff what did you think of the album when you first heard it and were you anticipating what the next steps might be in his career had you any idea where he was going with it no, I don't think so. I'm I'm not sure anybody really did, but certainly I can remember at the time, you know, the publicity was suggesting, you know, it was a double album. It was very much in the prog rock style, and I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, whenever I heard it, I really really enjoyed it, and certainly didn't think of it as anything, you know, less than Snow or what had gone before. Um, you know, it's a it's a really again varied album it contains i suppose a lot of those kind of signature things that you expect um from neil and a whole lot of different things um it was very personal for the first time um i suppose if you look back at neil's kind of even his lyrics and his language um you know across the songs a lot of it's kind of abstract or kind of storytelling or conceptual this was him telling his story so it was very very personal and i suppose we you know when we see neil live we see him you know quite often becoming emotional about you know the stuff that he's singing and and obviously this is some of the stuff that touches him most deeply um and again i think having mike there provided that link um that you had that element of the you know the transatlantic type sound at least kind of 50 percent of that appearing in places but as i said a whole lot of things like horns and strings and um 
you know, all sorts of instrumentation that probably wouldn't have featured in in Spock's because it was pretty much a, a five piece lineup. Yeah, I had a little bit of trepidation going into that album, but being the fan that I was, I you know, I said, well, of course, let me check it out. And Mike is on it, so you know, maybe it's still pretty good. And yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I won't say that it's my favorite album that he's done. I know for some people it is. Uh, I think there's a lot of great stuff on it, but I think that it was really him finding his footing again. And I think you can see as the albums progressed, it, it slowly evolved into another form of what he had been doing with Spox, but it sort of took a little bit of a better direction and uh, it, it, everything kind of built, every album built on itself. And But I think you can look at it now and see it as a really important work in his catalog. It's It was absolutely a necessary album that he had to make. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We played earlier the live version from Colder in the Sun, and that, of course, is when we first met Randy George, uh, who has been synonymous with everything that Neil has done, basically, for the last 15 or so years. And uh, he's been on every uh, Neil solo album and, of course, is the basis for the Neil Morse Band. Uh, So, you know, we're going to go into the backstory of every member as best as we can. Uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Randy came about? Yeah, okay. So, Randy... um talks about his musical roots and foundations um, playing a variety of instruments, but he attributes his connection with the bass guitar to looking at an album cover by the Moody Blues and seeing John Lodge with a bass guitar. And the young Randy thought that was a very cool look and caused him to pick up and pursue that instrument. Of course, those of us who have seen the switcheroo at the Neil Morse concerts where they all swap instruments will know that he's also a very gifted guitar player and a keyboard player as well. Um, And, Randy's initial profile before um, his connection with Neil's band was with a band called Agilon, who were discovered by Rick Wakeman, and whose first album came out on Wakeman's Hope Records. And they've produced three albums over the years. Most of the material on there written by Randy. Um, I think all of the guitars and most of the bass playing um, are are down to him. And they're really um, they're really good albums for people who enjoy progressive rock and um the 2005 album the threshold of eternity and um, with the connections he'd established he was able to get guest appearances on that with by neil and by rick wakeman and by phil keggy as well so here's randy talking about his opportunity to work with neil i think it was transatlantic simpty that would be my first real exposure to neil after that i discovered more of the spock's beard stuff and became an instant fan However, it was several more years after that before I actually uh, connected with Neil. I called him out of the blue, uh, and I got his phone number from a mutual friend. And basically, uh, you know, we talked and exchanged music, and I finally figured out that what he was really looking for at the time was a bass player for the testimony tour. And so I offered to do it, and after exchanging some music and having a few phone calls, uh, he went for it. And I went out to Nashville and rehearsed, and we did the tour. Okay, and this is a track by Randy's band Agilon, and the link back to what we said earlier on, this is actually a cover of a song by the Moody Blues, who's at least a photograph inspired the young Randy. And this is Agilon's version of You and Me.
2003, uh, you had bands like Agilon out and, and other Christian progressive rock bands that were that were coming around the scene uh, that resulted in a series of compilation albums, the uh, first of which came out in 2004. And on the first compilation was a song called The River, which was done by a band called 10.10. Now, for those familiar with 10.10, that is a band Bill Hubauer was a part of. Uh, and that is how there's that first connection with him and Randy George. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Randy uh, was very, very closely involved in compiling those albums. And I suppose in terms of Bill, like Mike, um, he was alumnus of Berkeley College of Music. Uh, he actually left there a year before Mike joined, so their paths didn't cross there. Um, he was part of 10.10. He was also part of a Kansas tribute band and also um, a band called Apologetics, who were a Christian parody band and someone I saw it online described as a uh, weird Al Yankovic meets Billy Graham. Um, they're, they're an interesting band. They have some cool stuff. The second of those CPR Christian progressive rock compilations featured actually a Bill Hubar solo track. I think it's maybe the only Bill Hubar solo track that has ever come out, but Bill can maybe tell us whether that's right or not. And, um, but the, the interesting thing about it is that it actually shows one of the elements that Bill brought to Neil's music and to the Neil Morse band and that's his ability to create a prog cover version from a song that is not at all prog so we all know MacArthur Park and the the version of that Bill created for that on the prog world orchestra Christmas album there is the version of Frankenstein called Frankincense and this is a version of a song that I'm sure most people know I can see clearly um, from that CPR 2 CD by Bill Hubar. Clouds that had me blind 
gonna be a bright, bright, shining day. Gonna be a bright, bright, shining day. I think I can make it now. The pain is gone. All of the bad feelings have disappeared.
So during this time, Neil Morris and Mike Portnoy were continuing to put together uh, studio albums, and now Randy George was involved. Uh, the first one that the trio worked on together was One, and they continued to work together on Question Mark, Solo Scriptura, uh, Lifeline, and then Testimony 2, and so on. Uh, here's Randy talking about working with Neil and Mike now in this band. After the Testimony tour was over, I returned to Seattle. And the following spring, Neil invited me back to Nashville to do some shows. At that time, he was still recording demos for one. And they weren't finished. So I was out there for like three weeks. And so I spent some time in the studio while he was finishing up recording guitar parts on his demos. At that time, a lot of the uh, lyric book was still blank. There were gaping holes in songs that just didn't have any lyrics written. So I spent some time just sort of jotting down lyrical ideas, and he ended up really liking them, so we used a lot of it. Then uh, once the demos were finished, um, we decided to go ahead and record the album. Mike's availability had us right back there in two weeks later uh, doing the actual tracking at which time we brought in some additional musical bits as well and uh, used some of my demo in a couple of places. And then, uh, you know, we used a lot, of, a lot of the lyrics that I had written and basically did the one album at that point. After that, we sort of just kept on doing it. The one thing that hadn't happened yet was that these three members had not been able to play live together. Neil had done some light touring, mostly in Europe, uh, with a different lineup uh, that was put together by Colin Lajonaire, the drummer. But now, finally, after Testimony 2, they decided that they wanted to put together a U.S. tour, and that resulted in the live album, Live in Los Angeles, which had a bunch of members that had played on Testimony in previous studio albums. Jeff, where were you in the Neil Morse world at this point, and what was the album that was um, st- think, standing out for you? I think for me, so... A couple of things. I mean, Question Mark is probably the one that stands out for a number of reasons. Um, number one, there was a big um, campaign in the run-up to it. There was a series of, of, of guest appearances on the album, and they were kind of teased with clues over the um, over over the course of the run-up to the album. And, of course, the Question Mark name was because we didn't nobody knew what the album was going to be. Um, but they kind of teased, you know, that Roy is on it and um, Alan Morse and Steve Hackett, stuff like that seeing um then the first time i ever saw neil was with that european band when they toured um question mark and again you know so my first uh apart from some church services that i'd seen neil be part of um, my first kind of neil morse with a live band experience was the question mark album being played live and it was amazing um and and you know, I've, I've, I think I said it on that podcast as well. Initially, Sola, which is an album that a lot of people love, was probably my my least favorite, maybe, of what he had done. But I think, and again, having seen that at Morse Fest, that really that came alive when I saw it live. And um, but I had the, you know, it was brilliant because in Europe we got to see that. We got to see the uh, there was a Sola tour with Paul Belatovich on guitar. Um, so we, we did get to see the music live more than the rest of the world. Soul is my personal favorite, at least from that era. Um, it's, it's just one that always affects me musically. I think it's uh, one of the best things that, he, that he's ever done. So to that end, we did a top five podcast 
almost a year ago now where we, uh, Jeff, myself, and uh, Prog Nick um, did a top five on Neil Morse albums where we talk about most of these albums. So if you missed that, because you're just coming on the scene with our podcast, look for that one. That's a lot of fun. Uh, We're going to play something from the Live in Los Angeles album with now Mike, Randy, and a slew of other musicians that had been on a testimony in some of the previous albums. Uh, We're going to play Time Changer. Change the time. 
brightest since the day from where we had come. Sun and moon both crystallized. It was better late. Our day with the sun. Never, Never were we so surprised. She sees the day from so where we had come. Sun and moon both crystallized. It was better late. Our day with the sun. Never were we so surprised. She sees the day from where we had come. Sun and moon both crystallized. It was better late. Our day with the sun. Never were we so surprised. She sees the day from where we had come. Sun and moon both crystallized. It was better late. Our day with the sun. As we were going. To who knows, knows where Huffman was coming and all for the world. Never were we so surprised to see the day from where we had So now Neil was doing another album. Him, Randy, and Mike wrote and recorded the Momentum album. Not a concept album, just a, a bunch of collection of songs. Some really great stuff. Uh, World Without End is a, a brilliant epic that uh, actually he's one of the long epics he still has yet to play at Morse Fest. So hopefully maybe one day they'll pull that out. There's another Thoughts on there. Momentum is a great single. Uh, really solid album from beginning to end. I think it's underrated frankly. But they wanted to find uh, a full-time touring band. So this is a, the, probably the most significant thing to happen with Neil and Mike and Randy that we're going to cover, really. Neil had this idea that he was going to go on YouTube and ask for people to send in uh, them playing some of his music. They ran auditions that way. The results were pretty miraculous. Yeah, um, there was. A, I think the, the videos had to have a certain hashtag. So, so as a fan, you could go on and see what people were putting on. And of course, this was this was actually even before Mike had kind of decided to be uh, to be able to fully commit to it. So there was also auditions for for drummers as part of that. And um, the whole thing is chronicled. If you if you missed that at the time, the whole thing is chronicled across three um, probably fifteen minute uh, videos on YouTube called Chance of a Lifetime, um, where he goes through the auditions and you know a lot of really great players. Some some people who have gone on to to different things and other bands as well. Um, so not all of the names have have disappeared, but they decided in the end on um, Adson Sodre on guitar. 
and uh, Bill Hubar on keyboards and a drummer called Paul Simons. And actually, by the time that process ended, Paul had some some changes happen. And so he um, ended up not being in the band uh, ever. Um, but uh, he, the drummer was a guy called Jason Gianni, who actually played some shows with the band before Mike kind of got, got, invo- got involved, I suppose, full-time. The other person who came on the scene for the first time as part of this was Eric Gillette, and he um, was brought into the band as a utility guy because on um, his audition videos, he not only played amazing guitar, but he also auditioned for the keyboard role as well and showed that he could equally kind of cut it in that field. And he's a great singer as well. So he was very much a valued addition, I suppose, to a band where Neil, in the live context, is doing a lot of keyboards, he's doing a lot of electric guitar, and he's doing a lot of singing. That in the presence of Eric in a live band allowed Neil to kind of, uh, you know, t- not be tied down um, to the keyboard to the same extent. And certainly in the touring that followed after that, we saw, you know, Neil's on, on songs like Lifeline and stuff like that being down the front and kind of getting the crowd whipped up. So in 2009, Mike and Neil reunited with Transatlantic with Pete Travis and Roy Nestolt. They recorded The Whirlwind, which is a huge success. A world tour followed with that. Uh, and then with test, prior to Testimony 2, a pretty humongous thing happened, which was Portnoy leaving Dream Theater. Um, that was pretty significant in that it also allowed him to have more time to go on tour with Neil for the Testimony 2 tour and further when they went on tour for Momentum. The Momentum Live Tour then featured that six-piece lineup, and again, it, you know, it was a great experience um, for people seeing that lineup. Particularly um, the American side of the world, very happy to see Neil Morse and um, the musicians coming to the Earth Town. They were billed as, at least in Europe, they were billed as the Neil Morse Band, but of course, they were not the Neil Morse Band that we have come to know. But great having, you know, musicians like Adson and Bill and Eric added into what we already knew was a really solid lineup. That tour then moved to Europe where they went out on a double header with the Flower Kings and we got a real treat in Europe with that because we got a 90-minute Flower Kings set. We got a 90-minute Neil Morse band set, which culminated, I remember, with, we talked about World Without End, um, an absolutely show-stopping version of that at the end of the show, really, really um, fantastic with Adson and Eric and Bill and clarinet and all sorts of stuff. Um, and then, if that wasn't enough, um, it was followed by what they build as a transatlantic encore. So um, Neil and Mike and Royna joined forces with various members of the band. Eric playing some guitar, Jonas played some bass, Randy played some bass, and it ended up with a, a big finale of... Um, the end of Whirlwind with um, Hasse from the Flower King singing the high part. And in fact, the show that I saw it at, or one of the two shows I saw that um, in London, Steve Hackett came on stage with about 12, 13, 14 people. And Steve Hackett came on to play um, some electric guitar as well. That was a, a really, really memorable experience. So for me, that tour was the first time I got to see Neil live in the States. Uh, after being a fan for now 15 years, I guess, by that point, um, that was uh, amazing. And I was thrilled. And it was with Mike Portnoy, who, you know, was one of my favorite drummers and still is. And uh, I, I remember that. It was it was amazing. 
uh, that everything they played, they did Crazy Horses with Mike coming out and singing. You know, they played, uh, I think, a lot of stuff from One even. They played Reunion. Uh, just a, a great show. And you can hear it on the live Momentum album. Obviously, what do you do when you've got like so much material that you've put together? And I imagine Mike was probably quite heavily involved and they put together these kind of little suites. So there was a question mark suite of kind of 20 minutes of question mark. There was a testimony suite of 20 minutes of testimony they did the conflict you know which was kind of half an hour from sola they really did their best to cram in as much of their catalog as they could here is a little excerpt from world without end
Looking back, you're reminded of the numerous losses The losses that we knew from the previous plague Despite of the knowing and rather than growing We come up with excuses intentionally vague With obvious lack of heartfelt care Strips of our feeling emotionally bare You find yourself just standing there Trying to explain the mystery Unconditional love Your selfish soul feeds on past revelation Holding the mystery in history's glove With obvious lack of heartfelt care Stripped of our feeling emotionally bare You find yourself just standing there Trying to explain the mystery definitely was a long show. Oh, and I should point out, so if you have the DVD of the live momentum, uh, Randy George put together some clips from them on tour. 
And the footage of them mm-hmm. performing live in Jacksonville yeah. is actually from me. <laughs> I, sh- <laughs> I shot that footage and I put it up on YouTube weeks later. And Randy George messaged me and asked me if he could have the footage. On the Inner Circle DVD of the European tour, there is also video footage, which I filmed, um, of of Jonas did this thing <laughs> at the end of the show um, where they basically, and they've been doing it progressively across the tour, but they basically stacked amplifiers on top of each other. And for the final note of Whirlwind, um, Jonas jumped off the top of the amplifiers, and this was an incredible sight to behold. And I think because the, the show, and I think it was Wolverhampton was the last show, they added an extra amplifier on it, and I swear he must have been like about 15 feet off the ground and and, and jumped onto the stage. Um, and that got slotted into the Inner Circle documentary about the European tour. So there you go. We've both We're both filmmakers, my word. Things we didn't know. Yeah, there you go. So the band did their US tour, they did the European tour, and then they were going to come back and do some more shows and possibly work on some new music. But it became a problem for Adson, who had some visa issues and was not able to make it. That opened the door for Eric, who had to take on all the guitar parts and obviously proved capable enough. Uh, And then that became the five-piece that eventually became the new Morse yeah, band. As I we think know I've, heard, I've read in interviews or heard them saying that they did consider at one point giving the band a new name. And who knows, maybe that would have been a good idea. Maybe it would not have been. Um, but whatever the outcome, that those five people became the Neil Morse band that we know and love today and um, got to work on their first studio album. Um, in between that time, and in fact, um, probably slightly before that time, Eric had also recorded his first solo album that was called Afterthought. And he, I remember buying a copy of those that he was selling on the Momentum Tour. And it also features um, Randy on bass on some tracks and Bill on keyboards. And um, we're going to play a song from that album called Rising, uh, which is a, yeah, a song that features Bill Hubar on keyboard solo on a song by Eric Gillette. Okay, so thank you for hanging out with us on episode two. Stay tuned for episode three, which will be out in a few weeks. And of course, we'll get to similitude of a dream and the great adventure and everything in between. Thanks. (laughs) 